Let's pray. God and Father, as we prepare now to study your word, I pray that you would be working, speaking to us through it, that your Holy Spirit would be enlivening our hearts to receive it. Pray that you would be with all of us, though we're sinful, as we sit under its authority. Be with me, though I am sinful, as I seek to proclaim what it says. Pray that you would be teaching all of us the truth of your word, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this week we are going to be taking a break. We're going to be hitting the pause button on our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. If you've been with us, we just finished up Luke 6, and in a few weeks we're going to jump back in in Luke 7, but we're going to take four weeks off to actually do a topical series on our speech, on how we talk as Christians and what we say. And I thought it would be appropriate here as we start to just briefly explain why we're doing that. Really, there's two levels that explain why we're doing this sermon series. One has to do with our world and the culture that we live in. I think most people are aware to some extent that in our world, civil public discourse is breaking down. Civil public discourse, our ability to talk and disagree with each other in a way that is still respectful and preserves our shared humanity, that is breaking down. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A couple of them have really been long-term reasons that, that have been happening for a while. One of those has to do with political polarization, which is to say that in our country, as the left has moved further to the left and the right has moved further to the right, they are increasingly far apart from each other, and there are people on the extremes of both groups who are not really interested in listening to each other or discussing or compromising or working things out together. They're just interested in beating the other side, and that has contributed to the breakdown of civil public discourse in our world. And likewise, the internet has contributed to it as well. The internet has plenty of benefits, but one of its greatest costs is that especially on social media and through internet news sources, you get this kind of breakdown of conversation and learning and discussion, and instead you, what you end up with is trolling and inflammatory posts and memes that you share just to show how much you belong to one side or the other, and all of these features that really break down our ability to have conversations with each other. And both of those forces have been at work for years, but then I feel like in this last year, there's all these pressure points that have been layered on top of that. COVID and the lockdown, the protests against police violence, the reality of this contentious election that's coming up. We have all of these things that are kind of putting stress on us and that really accentuate those forces that have been at work in our society. So civil public discourse is breaking down. And just to note, I say all of that not because our job is to kind of tell the world how to behave. This is not going to be a sermon series about how we wish society as a whole functioned. This is about the church, because we as Christians are called to first and foremost apply scripture to ourselves and our lives. But we as Christians are very much affected by those social forces. We still live in the world, and they are still at work in many of our hearts and lives. So that's one of the reasons we're doing this sermon series. But the other one is just, I have been reflecting a lot lately about our speech and the ways that the church often neglects to really train us in righteousness in this area. 
I have been ruminating about this verse from Matthew 12. I quoted it a couple weeks ago. But Jesus is talking about sins of speech and how they arise from sins in the heart. But then he says this in Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That is a convicting statement that every word we speak will be judged, that when we're before God's throne and the books are opened, it's not just our actions that are going to be contained in them, but it's everything we've said. And not even just everything we've said thoughtfully and intentionally. Every careless word, every throwaway comment we've made will be exposed in the final judgment. Now, of course, we as Christians, our hope in the final judgment is that we will be judged as righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand on God's grace, and so that ought not leave us in abject terror, but it should still be a sobering and convicting thought. It is for me, as somebody who both is prone to certain sins of speech and who for a living gets paid in part to talk about Jesus and things related to him, I am very convicted by that thought that God takes my words that seriously. And so because of that, we're going to talk about how we talk. We're going to talk about our speech and how Jesus calls us to speak as Christians. And over these four weeks, we're going to look at different areas. But this first Sunday, we're going to start with a very simple one, which is that we as Christians are called to speak truth. That's what we're going to talk about, speaking truth. And to get there, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to back up, and we're going to say, first of all, that we're called to love the truth, And then out of that, we're called to seek the truth. And then out of those things, we are called to speak the truth. First, we're called to love the truth, to love it from our hearts. If you read Philippians 4, 8, it says this. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul calls his hearers in the Philippian church to fix their minds on this list of things. And the list starts with truth, with things that are true. And we should notice how many of the other things on that list are tied up in the truth. What, whatever is honorable, he says, meaning that which is worthy of respect and deserves to be listened to. Whatever is just, justice in scripture is very much tied to the truth. Whatever is pure, meaning uncorrupted, not twisted by the deceitfulness of sin. All of these descriptions in some ways are meant to be tied together and related to each other, and we're supposed to see our call to love the truth in all of them. And why are these things that we should love, that we should fix our minds on? Well, ultimately, it's because these are all attributes of God himself. That when you read this list about true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, you're supposed to recognize that God is the one who ultimately represents those qualities. God is truth. Scripture insists on that fact. Psalm 119, the psalmist tells us the sum of your words is truth. That if you take all of God's words and add them up together, then what they equal is the truth. Paul tells us in Titus 1 that God never lies. Or in John 14, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So God is truth. What does that mean? Well, first it means that God is truth exactly who he is. 
and exactly who he says he is. The name he gives his people in the book of Exodus to know him as is, I am what I am. I am what I am. That there is no division in God, there is no contradiction. He doesn't hide parts of himself. He isn't in denial about parts of himself. God is fully and perfectly himself, and so he is true. And then coming out of that, God is also truth in the sense that he is the source of all truth in the world. And I don't just mean religious truth there. God, as the creator and sustainer of all things in the world, if anything in this world is true, that is ultimately something that is rooted in, and you can trace back to God. And so in the world, anything truly true comes from God, whether that's a truth of theology or science or wisdom or math or practical living. Sin distorts and corrupts in Scripture. Satan distorts and corrupts, but God is perfect truth. In him there is no falsehood. And so if that's true, then that means that if we love and follow this God who is truth, then we have to love the truth. And that means that we should love the truth all the time. We should love the truth even when it is inconvenient or it hurts us. I think one of the reasons that we often turn aside the lies is because there's times that the truth creates challenges for our lives. I mean, I think about a friend that I knew who grew up in this church, and he and his family became aware of the fact that one of the pastor's kids was stealing money from the church. This kid was an adult and was working for the church now, and he was stealing a large amount of money. And they went to the leaders of the church about this, and they said, well, we have to you know, make this known. We, we have to you know, exercise church discipline and, and let people know that this kid has taken their money. And the leader's response was to say, no, 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 we're not gonna do that because that would hurt the reputation of our pastor, and it would hurt the reputation of our church, and it might make Christianity look bad. So what we're gonna do instead is we're gonna cover this up and not tell anybody. And so they quietly moved the kid out of his role at the church and found him another job and hid the malfeasance so that nobody would know. That is not loving the truth. Because if we love the truth, we will love it even when it inconveniences or hurts us. We should love the truth even when it costs us. One of the reasons that we love lies is because at times they are easier than the truth, less costly. You think about people you know, people who are making destructive decisions or people who could be helped by a word of admonition or people who have never heard about Jesus and we don't speak the truth to them. Why not? Well, often I think the root reason is just because that's gonna be costly. We recognize that it could cost us a friend or a job we recognize that this person might lash out at us or seek revenge. They might embarrass us and we might be humiliated. And because we're not willing to pay that cost, we turn aside from the truth. But if we love the truth, we will love it even when it costs us. We should love the truth even when it takes work to find it. Honestly, I think one of the big ways that we fail to seek the truth is simply that we say, well, it's too hard. It's going to take time and thinking for me to determine what's true, and so I'm just going to keep believing what I believe and never test or challenge it. And the problem with that is that lies do not have to come from malice. Lies can come from simple laziness, from a failure to seek after what is true, 
And so if we love the truth, even when it is hard work for us to determine what it is, we should put that work in. We should love the truth over worldly gain. Lies can give us advantages in this world. Pretending that you worked harder than you did. Pretending things were someone else's fault. Telling stories that make you seem better than you are. Those are all lies that can help you get ahead in the world. That might pay off for you relationally or financially. But if we love the truth, we're called to have nothing to do with them. And we should love the truth even when it reveals our sins. I think the greatest lies we tell are often the lies that we tell to ourselves. We are so invested in being good people, in being people worthy of admiration, in being people above reproach, that we mask over and hide our sins, both from the world and from ourselves. Jesus tells us that God's law is supposed to function like a mirror, that you're supposed to look in it and get a true picture of yourself. And the reality is that the picture you get there is often not going to be pretty. It's often going to expose things that you wish you didn't have to see. But if we love the truth, we will look in that mirror and honestly acknowledge what it tells us. And again, in all of this, we are called to love the truth because God is truth. God never lies to us. Scripture is unflinchingly honest about the world. God is unfailingly faithful to his promises. He has paid blood for them. He does not obfuscate. He does not deceive. He does not engage in double talk. God never lies to us. God never lies to himself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I mean, God is not in denial about your sin and your issues. Those things that you don't want to look at and that you don't want to look in the mirror and see, God sees all of them better than you ever could. And yes, he loves you. In his grace, he chooses to love you, but it isn't because he's lying to himself about you. God is truth, and so all truth belongs to God and is on his side. All truth is on God's side, and all lies are opposed to him. So we are called to love the truth. And then because of that, I think scripture would also call us to seek the truth, to do the work of seeking what is true. Read Philippians 4, 8 again. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So there's two ways you can read that text. One is that you read it and think that Paul is talking about stuff. I think that is a common way of reading it, but I think it's wrong. That he's saying that there's true and false stuff, good and bad stuff, and you're just supposed to think about the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. And what do I mean by stuff? I mean things. I mean people, books, music, political parties, movies, philosophies, that there's kind of two buckets and you can drop them in. You know, this is a truth true person this is a false person. This is a true book. This is a false book. And we can just drop them into those buckets and move on with our lives. The problem with that is that is not actually the way scripture tells us the world works. In scripture, all stuff, all people, books, music, political parties, whatever, all of stuff is being affected by two forces at the same time, two forces. One is God's truthfulness. 
Scripture teaches this idea of common grace, that God works in the world revealing himself, giving grace and mercy in all kinds of ways to every part of creation. All of this world is God's good creation. Every human being still bears the image of God. And as a result of that, wherever you look, you can find some truth. So God's truth is a force working in everything in the world. And then at the same time, sin's corruption is also working in everything. That sin spreads its tendrils out so that everything gets twisted and everything has some amount of deceit, some amount of evil in it. And, and, that's, and, and, and it affects everything too. So everything has both God's truth and sin's corruption at work in it. Now, that does not mean that everything is equal. There are some things where one or the other is definitely more in play. But it does mean that we need to be mindful that whenever we engage with stuff in the world, our calling is to seek out what is true and at the same time also then to separate out what is false. So when, when Paul says, think about whatever is true and honorable and just and pure, he doesn't mean like only read true books, whatever that means. He says that when you're reading a book, you're supposed to ask, what in here is true? What is worthy of commendation? What is excellent? What are the things that I'm supposed to find here to think about? And to think about those things. And then of course also to sort out the things that are untrue, that are impure, that are dishonorable, and to turn from that which is to say we need what scripture calls discernment. We as believers are called to exercise discernment. In Romans 12, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul's saying whenever you encounter something in the world, what you need to do is test that thing and so discern, so recognize in that thing what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or in Philippians 1, earlier in this book of Philippians, he says this, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So he wants us to grow in understanding and in discernment, so that we can test and approve the things that are excellent. He uses that same word in Philippians 4, right? And so we can then be pure and blameless. So our calling is to be discerning, looking for the truth, and recognizing falsehood whenever we're engaged with the world. Practically, that means two things for us. One, that means that we should be looking for falsehood even in things that we're inclined to believe. We should be looking for falsehood even in things we're inclined to believe. Let's just talk for a minute about the label Christian, which I mean, you know, Christian music, Christian books, Christian movies, Christian conferences. First of all, it's just worth saying that label Christian, I mean, I mean like, like songs and movies aren't Christian, right? They, they, they can't experience the new birth and be made new creations and receive the justifying grace of God covering their sins. They're just things, right? Certainly they can be made by Christians, although even there it's worth bearing in mind with that label that it tends in our world to mostly just be a marketing slogan and that it doesn't really reflect that much about who made it. But even if something is made by a Christian, we are still called to test that thing. Because the corruption of sin is at work even in our hearts and lives. 
And so even the things that a Christian says or makes can be twisted by parts that are untrue or that are dishonorable. I mean, even this sermon, I mean that all the time, right? Even when you hear me preach, part of your job is to be discerning, to test what I'm saying, and if there's falsehood in it, then you should reject that. We're called to be doing that all of the time, even, and I think especially, with things that we're otherwise inclined to trust. The devil often dresses up as an angel of life, and one of the things that worries me the most, you know, some, some book written by some atheist, I don't think that has that much power to lead many Christians astray, but a book written by a Christian with a Christian publishing imprint and a cross on its cover and all that stuff, that thing, if it contains falsehoods, is very able to deceive us. Which is why it's so dangerous to sort things into those buckets. With each thing, regardless of how we think about it, we should be aware that it can be corrupted by sin. And at the same time, we should seek out truth, even in things we aren't inclined to believe. All truth is God's truth, and God's truth still gets displayed all over creation, even in things that are not explicitly given over to him. Think about this. In the book of Proverbs, which is this book in the Old Testament that is a collection of sayings about wisdom compiled by King Solomon. In the book of Proverbs, starting in chapter 22, there's this section that seems to be drawn from Egyptian wisdom literature. In Egypt, there was this collection of wisdom sayings called the Instruction of Amenemope, and there's a lot of similarities. A lot of people think that what Solomon did is he took part of that instruction from this Egyptian text and put that in the book of Proverbs. And that really bothers some Christians, and that really is celebrated by some non-Christians because they all think like, well, if that's true, then that, that can't be God's word, right? Because surely if it's something the Egyptians made, there can't be truth in it. Nonsense! Biblically, God's truth is scattered all through the world, and Scripture celebrates it wherever we find it. The Apostle Paul quotes pagan poets and philosophers, not meaning that they're right in everything they said, but just meaning that they said a true thing, and let me give that to you. And Solomon, I'm sure, is doing the same thing. Solomon recognized wisdom. He did not necessarily live wisely, but he knew wisdom when he saw it, And when he saw it in this text from ancient Egypt, just as if he saw it anywhere else, he would gladly share it with others so that we might learn to be wise. We need to approach the world in that same way. If we love the truth, we need to, when we hear a person we disagree with or an idea we disagree with, we need to first ask what might be true in what they are saying. When someone critiques or challenges us, we should always ask, Is there truth that I can find in what they're saying? When we read a book or hear something on TV, we should ask, what can I learn from this as a follower of Jesus? I mean, look, just just frankly, right? I know I'm talking about books some, and I know some of us read more than others, but I mean, as someone who reads a lot of books, a lot of the best lessons I've learned about leadership and communication and our world and how to think about the culture, many of the best lessons I've learned come from books that were not written by Christians. Whenever we see a movie or listen to a song, we should ask, what are they saying here and what there is true? What part of that fits with God's common grace? And yes, as we're doing that, we should also be recognizing the falsehood. We should be discerning that as well, but we should celebrate the truth. We should embrace it and be glad we have found it. Because again, all truth in this world is God's truth. And as Christians, we're called to seek out that truth wherever it is. When there is a lie, 
we should call it a lie, regardless of who says it. And when something is true, we should acknowledge that it is true, regardless of who says it. We should not lazily accept or reject things based on the label or the bucket we put them into, but in all things we should be seeking after what is true and honorable and pure and praiseworthy, and when we see that, we should think about it. So we are called to love the truth, and out of that we are called to seek after the truth. And then coming out of those realities, we as Christians ought to speak the truth. We are called to speak it. The whole point of loving the truth is that it's supposed to overflow into our actions. In Philippians 4.9, Paul says this. He says, When you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul says, As you've received these truths from me in these different ways, as you now know the truth, put it into practice. And yes, that includes more than just our words, but it includes what we say. That as we know the truth, we are called to speak it. In Ephesians 4, Paul says it like this. He says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So Paul says you've put away falsehood. You've turned from lies. You now trust in this God of truth. And because of that, speak the truth with your neighbors. We're called to speak the truth. This is where I want to get very practical. Let's start with a broad application that should be simple, but that we so often seem to struggle with. One of the main applications of that is that we shouldn't lie. This period, we should not lie to people. And here's the thing about that statement. I say that, and all of us, myself included, we immediately want to ask, but, but what about, but what about this, right? What about that? And in fact, what's weird about this specific statement that you as a Christian are called not to lie is that almost always that but what about ends up either being about dresses or about Nazis. Dresses and Nazis. Let me explain. First of all, one of the two questions you almost always hear when you say that we're called to not lie is, well, what happens? What about when my, my wife asks me if this dress makes her look fat? Now, look, there's all kinds of stuff loaded in that question that's actually really problematic, like about how we talk about women and things, but I don't know that I want to go there. Here, here's the issue, though, with that question, is that people think that it's self-evident. They think, like, oh, of course you're not supposed to say yes. And it is true, like if you're a husband, that if your wife asks you that and you say, oh, yeah, you look like the Goodyear blimp, that's a bad idea. So certainly in that sense, I understand. But here's the thing. When you think about that question, there's a bunch of really revealing things about it. The first one is that that question reveals the fact that just by asking it, that that woman in the, in the hypothetical situation has already been lied to in all kinds of ways. The world has lied to her by convincing her that she is not a dignified, beautiful, worthy daughter of God, but ra that rather that somehow it is this set of like simplistic physical criteria that define her. And if her husband has participated in making her feel that way, then he has been part of a wicked evil. And I say that, first of all, to just say, if the issue is that she's been lied to, lying to her more is not the way to solve that. In addition, that question, the way people, I think, mean it, it often confuses being truthful with being insensitive. And we're not going to dig into that this morning because next week, when we talk about speaking grace, we're actually going to spend a lot more time looking at that. But... 
but the fact that we're called to speak the truth does not in any way mean that we're supposed to be jerks, right? You, you can answer that question with something like, you know, I think that other outfit is more flattering on you, and it is just as true, but it is not going to elicit anger. But that's a, the other thing about that question, the root issue we always have is that when people ask it, they think, well, you can't tell the truth, right? But why not? I mean, look, all I can do is talk about my marriage, which has plenty of issues, but we have been married for 14 years, and there have been plenty of times over the years that my wife asked me, like, you know, how does this outfit look, you know, or what do you think of this? And look, I don't know why she asked me, because my idea of fashion is like, I put on a shirt, I put on some pants, I'm good to go. However, she asked me, and I give her my honest opinion. Now, I'm not a jerk about it, and I do it in the context of 14 years of marriage where I tell her every day that she is beautiful. But yeah, I tell her if something does not look attractive on her. And the thing is, she's never minded that. And I asked her, to be clear, I chatted with her about this before we talked about it here this morning. But yeah, she's asking the question because she wants to know what I think. The reason you have to dispel that question is because what's really being asked by it, I think, is they say, well, when you say don't lie, but surely you don't mean all the little lies, right? People talk about little white lies. They have this idea that like in, in little stuff that you don't need to be truthful, right? It's only in the big things. But the thing is, little lies are often a mask for very deep sins. We use little lies to hide our pride. We use little lies to cover up our jealousy. We use them to hide our sin and pretend like we're better than we are. We use them to tear down people in all of these subtle ways. We use them to convince people to do things that they shouldn't. Little lies are still untruth. So that's one objection. What about dresses? And then people always ask about Nazis. They say, well, what happens if you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding some Jews in the basement during the Holocaust, and the Nazis knock on your door and ask you if you're hiding them in your basement. Now that is actually a harder question, in that it might well be a real exception in that situation. So Christians actually disagree about how to answer that question. Some Christians hold that it is always wrong to lie, that you could refuse to answer, or maybe kind of obfuscate a little bit, but that you should not lie even when Nazis are knocking on your door. But other Christians would respond, and I'm kind of in this camp, that no, it does seem like in those situations it's permissible to lie. We have examples such as uh, Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua 2, or the couple that hides King David from Absalom in 2 Samuel 17, where people do lie in order to protect someone from being killed in Scripture, and they seem to be commended by that. But the thing to realize is that that exception is exceptional which is to say that it does not prove anything beyond itself. If that is an exception, it is an exception because protecting someone from unlawfully being murdered outweighs the need to tell the truth. And it does not apply outside of situations where people are getting unlawfully murdered, which to be clear is not the kind of thing that we almost ever confront in our lives. It's the problem whenever people do moral reasoning with Nazis. And so, Yes, if genocidal maniacs are knocking on your door, it might be permissible to lie to them. But the rest of the time, don't lie to people. Period. And in fact, I spent time talking about those exceptions because they're just so common. It's, it's really crazy. 
But let me ask a question in response to that, which is, why is it that that is where we always go when we hear such a statement? I mean, I've asked both of those questions, I think all of us, right? That is the kind of place our mind goes. Might that actually be part of what reveals the deceitfulness of our hearts? That we're so attached to sin that we have to talk about these kind of extreme hypotheticals to excuse the fact that we're not speaking the truth? So don't lie to people. Instead, speak the truth. Let me try to give you a picture of what that looks like. Our confession of sin this morning and for the next few weeks came out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It is one of the documents that form our church's constitution, the set of things that define what we believe scripture teaches. And what we read there is about, or what we used for the confession is about sins that are forbidden in the ninth commandment, which is the commandment about bearing false witness. But then it also talks about what duties are required from that commandment. And let me just read you part of what the Westminster Larger Catechism says, because I think this is good. It says, the ninth commandment requires that we maintain and promote truthfulness in our dealings with each other. We must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation, not only in all matters relating to law and justice, but in any and every circumstance whatsoever. So again, just, it says that we're called to maintain and promote truthfulness in the way we deal with other people. And in all the different dealings we have, we're to promote the truth. We need to come forward and stand up for the truth, meaning not letting lies reign, but speaking the truth and nothing but the truth, not kind of mixing in half-truths or whatever, and doing it from our hearts, doing it, it says, sincerely, freely, clearly, without equivocation, meaning without kind of, oh, I don't know, tied up in it. Not only in legal stuff, but in every circumstance. Just reflect on how far short of that you fall. I fall far short of it. All of us do. Our speech is often riddled with half-truths and lies. We often fail to speak the truth. So that's the general principles. Let me give two specific applications then, two areas of our lives where I find myself especially thinking about that. One is in terms of online speech. One very practical way to apply this is to recognize that it's not just about what we say to each other in person. It's also about the internet. I was thinking about an example of this a few weeks ago. I mean, here's the thing. People talk about fake news all the time today, and the problem with that is that a lot of people, when they say fake news, they really just mean stuff that I disagree with. But it is also true that there are just blatant lies on the internet. And I, I was, a, a couple weeks ago, I was looking at Facebook, which I occasionally do to just kind of see what people are talking about. Uh, and I saw this news story shared about how this politician had supposedly said this really crazy stuff. And normally I just ignore these kinds of things. But one, several people had shared this story and I, you know, that I knew and I saw people commenting on it and like freaking out about it. And two, I had heard nothing about this. And that's weird to me. I, uh, while I don't like to talk about it on Sunday mornings, I avidly follow the news um, every Every day I read the BBC and Fox and CNN and sometimes Al Jazeera so that I kind of hear from all different directions the opinions and views that people have. And usually I've heard about it on at least one of those places. So anyway, I'm like, 
really? So I clicked on the story and it's from some random website I had never heard of. So I clicked on the About Us page of this website. And let me read you what this website says about itself and the stories it publishes. It says, quote, everything on this website is fiction. It is not real. If you believe that it is real, you should have your head examined. Any similarities between this site's pure fantasy and actual people, places, and events are purely coincidental, and all images should be considered altered and satirical. Which is to say, it was just made up. Now here's the thing. The ultimate, the ultimate blame for that lie does rest with the guy who wrote that story and runs that website. I mean, the reason he says that on the About Us page is so that he doesn't get blocked as spreading misinformation on Facebook and Twitter, but he writes, he, he clearly was writing these stories knowing that most people were not gonna do that research, right? But at the same time, the reality is that every one of the people that shared that also participated in and was guilty of sharing that lie because none of them did check to see whether it was true. Remember, as we said earlier, lying out of laziness is just as sinful as lying out of malice. When you share those sorts of untruths, that, that is evil, that is sin. Christians should not be doing that. It's terrible for our witness and it's bad for our souls. And I know we often doing it unknowingly, especially because the internet is such a strange forum. But the reality is that if we love the truth, we can't participate in those sorts of things. Let me just very practically, I've got kind of my list of rules before I would consider sharing things online, which I don't do much of anyway, but the rules are this. One, it is check the source, which is to say always, if you don't know this website, read the About Us page. Um, try to figure out who the people are that are saying it and what their credentials are. And if you can't figure that out at all, it probably means you shouldn't trust what the website is saying. Two, See if other sources say the same thing. Before I ever share anything, I always Google some of the keywords from it. And when that happens, look, if like the first or second thing that comes up is on Snopes or one of those fact-checking websites, look, it's true, those sites aren't perfect, they can get things wrong, but at the very least before you would share a story, you need to go read what they say to see what the problems might be. Number three is a general rule only share stories from reputable news organizations, from real news organizations. And a lot of people react badly to this because they're like, oh, you know, the media is so biased. And there is bias in the media, that is true. But, but friend, it is nothing compared to the bias of the dude living in his mom's basement, typing away on his keyboard with zero accountability or consequences for what he says, right? I mean, you could, and as you recognize the bias, like if you see some thing that's, that, that sounds like it would come from a really conservative source, go see if Fox has reported on it. And if you see something that's come from a really liberal source, go see if MSNBC has reported on it. And if they haven't, that might be a good sign that it's not true, or at least it's not the whole story. And then after you've done those things, if you are not certain that it's true, don't share it. And maybe I'd add to that a fifth rule, which is that if you don't feel like doing the effort of those other steps, also don't share it. It is better to keep silent than to sin. That's something I'm at times not good at doing, but it is, that is a thing I retind, remind myself of. It is better to keep silent than to sin. And that actually ties into the second specific application, which is that we need to cultivate a habit of listening first. Listening first. 
James in James 1 says this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Which is to say that we want to be quick to listen to people and slow to speak in return. Which, if you're anything like me, is the opposite of what you feel like doing. The thing is, it's so easy for us to say, like, well, I've got to speak up when you hear something that you disagree with. You know, I don't think that's true, and all it takes for evil to succeed is for good men to keep silent. Which is true enough, but again, it is equally true that it is better to keep silent than to sin. It is better to keep silent than to spread a lie. And more than that, by listening first, we learn the humility to consider whether we do actually know the truth, or at least know it perfectly. A practice that I've tried to cultivate in my own life when I hear someone say something I disagree with is that what my mind immediately starts thinking of is what I want to say in response. It starts thinking about an argument, and instead, the first thing that I want to do is to come up with a question. When I hear something that I disagree with, I want to come up with a question to ask the person about it. And then usually a second and third question. And sure, those questions might make clear that we don't agree about this, and at some point I might kind of share my opinions, but by asking and listening first, there are times that I learn things, there are times I've changed my opinions about things, and even when I haven't, I feel like I have a firmer grasp of what parts of what I believe are, str are strong and true and what parts are maybe on shakier foundations. So listen first. And in all of that, as we seek to speak the truth, Remember that all of that is rooted in that reality that God is the God of truth, which is the, the, the reality I want to end on. We said that already, that God is the God of truth, and so he is the source of all truth, and so we should love truth. But one last fact I want you to reflect on as we close is that because God is the God of truth, that means that truth will win in the end, and we don't have to protect it. That the truth is ultimately sustained by God's power and not ours. I suspect that's why the ultimate hope Paul gives in Philippians 4, he says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It is God's powerful presence that is ultimately the hope that Paul wants the Philippians to have. A big part of why truth is ultimately broken down in our society is our failure to trust in God. And I don't just mean culturally. Sure, that's kind of there, that as we become more secular, we have less of that source of truth. But, um, but I mean for us as Christians, what often has happened is that I don't think we really believe that God's going to protect his cause. I don't think we really believe that God will take up the cause of truth. And so we start trying to defend it, and we start resorting to ungodly means, thinking that we are protecting it. We become convinced that the only way to protect the truth is to perpetuate lies or hide parts of what is really true, to, to cover up scandals and sins. We think that if we listen or if we keep silent when we're uncertain or if we're careful and nuanced, we think that the bad liars are going to win. I hear that kind of reasoning in different forms all the time among believers. And so friends, it is true that we are called to speak the truth. And at times that means we need to do it courageously and at times that means we need to do it in the face of opposition. But we do that because God is truth and because of that, it does not depend on us to ultimately protect it. God will win. He will vindicate his cause. 
He will triumph over all falsehood. He will reveal the hidden things. Every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God will vindicate the cause of truth. And as a result of that, we are freed to speak the truth out of love for God and keep silent when we aren't sure what is true, not worrying about winning, but simply being faithful to our God who will win. The God of truth has this thing under control. The truth will be made known. And our calling is to seek to be on his side rather than thinking his cause is one that needs to be protected on deceitful terms. Let's pray. Father, I am deeply convicted by this message. I'm sure many of us are. I give you thanks, Lord, for the truth of your love, the truth of the gospel, the truth made flesh in Jesus Christ to seek and save us. And I pray that out of that truth, Lord, we would learn to love and be people of truth. Take from our lips all falsehoods and lies. Remove from us all deceit and obfuscation. Lord, turn us from, from half-truths. Turn us from, from the laziness that often allows us to believe untrue things, Lord. Make us be people that love and delight in and seek after what is true and what is honorable and what is pure and what is commendable. Father, I pray that you would be working this in our hearts and working this in our communities. Help us to be people that speak the truth to each other, that do so sincerely and sensitively, but that do so honestly. Help us to speak the truth to ourselves, Lord. Remove from us our own self-deceit. Fill our hearts with truth so that we might recognize the reality of our sin and the reality of your love for us in Jesus Christ. It is in his name I pray all of this. Amen. And now, friends, join us in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 